Volume One, Chapter Four of The Life and Amours of the Beautiful, Gay, and Dashing Kate Percival, the Belle of the Delaware. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life and Amours of Kate Percival, written by herself. Volume One, Chapter Four An Orgy. The next day at two o'clock, Mrs. Clarence and her two children started for Philadelphia, leaving Amy, Mr. Herbert, and myself the sole occupants of Riverside Lodge. We passed a delightful afternoon together, wandering about the grounds, reading amorous books, and filling up intervals with tender conversation. I found Amy to be a very intelligent girl who conversed on almost every subject. We stayed out in the open air until it began to grow dark, then we all re-entered the house. We then sat down to a delicious repast followed by a bottle or two of champagne. The wine caused our eyes to sparkle and unloosened our tongues. "'Come, girls,' said Herbert, rising from his chair after we had finished dessert. "'Follow me, and I will conduct you to the room destined to be the theatre of our joys.' We obeyed, and he led us to a part of the house I had never visited before. At the end of a passage he unlocked a door, and ushered us into a magnificently furnished chamber. In fact it was furnished with a luxury which I had never before imagined. The apartment was of octagon shape, and was lighted by a chandelier which hung from the ceiling, suspended therefrom by silver chains. The ceiling itself was beautifully frescoed, and was painted with scenes from heathen mythology. Placed here and there throughout the chamber were statuettes made of Parian marble, which almost seemed to breathe in the soft artificial light. The floor was covered with a gorgeous medallion carpet, and around the walls were placed easy-chairs and sofas of the most costly description. A peculiar intoxicating perfume was shed through the room, which had the effect of inducing a soft languor. There were eight panels formed by the octagon shape of the room. The upper portion of each panel was filled by a beautifully executed oil painting, the lower portion by a mirror or plate glass descending to the floor. Each painting was numbered from one to eight, and they were such exciting subjects and so beautifully executed that I cannot refrain from giving a description of them to the reader. Number one represented a beautiful girl reclining on a sofa, her petticoats raised to reveal the lower portion of her body. Her head was thrown back, her breasts were bare, and her thighs were elevated in the air. In front of her was a young man with the insignia of his sex proudly elevated, menacing the domain of Venus with his formidable weapon. Another girl seated on the sofa behind him was endeavoring to pull him away from her more fortunate companion. Her clothes, too, were raised above her navel, revealing all the secrets of her person. The artist had painted her charms so perfectly that it was difficult to believe they were not real. The lips of her slit and the hair surmounting the hillock of Venus was done to the very life. This picture was labelled The Dispute. Number two, labelled A Water Party, represented a boat gliding down a silver stream. On the edge of the boat sat a man entirely naked, with a girl in the same condition in his arms. Her arms encircled his neck while he grasped her around the body. Her thighs were wrapped tightly around his loins, while his instrument was buried to the very hilt in her salacious slit. In the water, 
A girl was resting on her hands, her plump bubbies just kissing the stream, while behind her stood a man with her legs in his grasp, his staff of love deeply embedded in her sensitive vagina. The lips of her bijou were beautifully depicted at the lower part of her white bottom. Another nymph was getting into the boat with her back turned to the spectator, thus showing the glorious slope of her back and her voluminous white buttocks and thighs. Number three, labeled a complete seat, represented a man sitting on the edge of a low wall, a lovely girl completely in a state of nature in his lap. She sat sideways. One of her thighs rested on his arm, the other hung down. The elevation of her thigh enabled the spectator to see his pego, hovering between the lips of the warm nest destined by nature to receive it. Number four, entitled Rural Felicity, depicted a beautiful girl seated on a rock beside a stream of water. She was naked, as also was her companion, a stalwart man who kneeled over her belly, in such a manner that he had placed his staff between her bubbies, which she squeezed together for the purpose of holding it tightly in position. Below his buttocks could be seen the whole of her domain of love, his bottom resting on the hairy mount. Number five, entitled Mutual Enjoyment, represented a man and a woman lying on a couch together, but in reversed position. The man's tongue had penetrated into her lustful cavity, while she had his engine in her mouth, at the same time tickling his testicles with her fingers. Number six, labeled Garden Studies, represented a beautiful flower garden, in the midst of which was a man seated on a rustic bench. A girl was standing over him with her clothes raised up, and his rod was just entering her sheath at the same time that he was titillating her clitoris with his finger. Number seven, labeled A Scene in the Rocky Mountains, represented a naked nymph seated on a rock, while in front of her stood her lover with her thigh resting on his arms. She had seized his weapon, and was just forcing it into her lascivious cavity. A short distance off was another girl, also seated, amusing herself with a dildo which she had embedded in her sheath. Number eight, entitled A Kitchen Scene, represented a naked man embracing a girl from behind. Her head rested on an ottoman placed on a bench, her thighs rested on his shoulders, and he was kissing her bottom, molding her breasts and driving into her vagina all at the same time. The reader can imagine how the sight of these lascivious pictures acted upon two such excitable girls as we were. I forgot to mention that in the center of the apartment was a long divan, evidently made purposely for the sexual act. It was perfectly certain from our sparkling eyes, from our heightened color, and from our trembling limbs that we were almost crazy with desire, and that we were ready to do anything to appease our passions. Still, there was for a moment or two a kind of restraint as to who should begin. Amy was the first to break. "'We have come here to enjoy ourselves,' she exclaimed. "'Let us lose no time. I propose the first thing we do is to strip ourselves entirely naked.' "'Agreed,' I returned, commencing to unfasten my frock, and in a few moments we had divested ourselves of every particle of clothing. When we all three stood naked, we saw our forms reflected over and over again in the mirrors. Herbert came up to us and clasped us both in his arms. He kissed us all over. Now it was our bubbies, now it was our whole bellies, now it was the center of love itself, until we were all so excited that the consummation could no longer be delayed. Amy, indeed, was beyond herself, for she threw herself on her back on the divan, and, 
opening her white thighs to the widest extent, begged for someone to come and give her relief. "'If someone does not come and quench the fire burning in me, I shall die,' said she. "'My slit is on fire. Come, Clarence. Drive your delicious pego into my vitals. See, I open the door for you. Come, darling, come.' And the voluptuous girl, with her finger and thumb, opened the lips of her coral sheath and showed up the pink interior. Who could resist such an appeal as this? Certainly not Herbert, for he rushed to the suffering girl, and in a moment his pego was knocking at the mouth of her womb, embedded to the very hair in her salacious cavity. Great God, what a delicious sight it was! Amy was crazy with delight. She folded her legs and thighs around his loins and jutted up her mons veneris to meet his thrusts. They had already commenced to move together when Amy suddenly called to me. "'Come here, Kate,' said she. "'You must have your share, too. Just turn your bottom towards me and straddle across my face.' I did as she requested, and my position was such that my notch came directly over her mouth. "'Now, Herbert,' said Amy, "'I will titillate her clitoris with my tongue while you imitate the sexual act with your tongue.' I threw my arms around Herbert's neck, he brought his face to mine, and his tongue penetrated my lips. In the meantime I could feel Amy's tongue seek out my clitoris, which she no sooner found than she began to titillate it in the most entrancing manner. I was gorged with love, and so was Amy, for I could feel her whole body shiver with her delicious sensations. Herbert began to drive most furiously into her body. Amy kept time with her tongue in my slit. We were much too excited to be able to prolong this scene. The crisis soon arrived. Amy's burning womb received Herbert's boiling sperm, while she responded in such profusion that it actually ran down her white thighs. Nor was I behind, for Amy's tongue brought down from me a copious shower of the elixir of love. This exciting scene over, we all took a bath, which was conveniently situated in an adjoining chamber, and, partaking of a few glasses of champagne, we rested ten minutes. "'Come, dear Kate,' said Clarence. "'It is your turn now.' And throwing himself on his back on the divan, he drew me on top of him. In another moment his engine of love had penetrated my slit, and I felt it rubbing one side of my sensitive vagina. Amy stationed herself behind us, and watched with flushing eyes and heightened color the in-and-out motion of his pego into my body. At last, unable to control herself any longer, she passed one hand between our bellies and titillated my clitoris, while with her other hand she tickled alternately my bottom and his testicles. Soon, however, she changed her tactics, and applied some vigorous slaps on my broad buttocks, turning the white cheeks into a rosy hue. Each time she struck me, it seemed to impale me on his fiery staff, causing it to enter a prodigious way into my mount. I insisted that Clarence should remain perfectly passive while I did all the work, and I can assure the reader that I moved my buttocks in fine style. The mirrors around us reflected our actions, and not only was I feeling gratified but, owing to their agency, I could see his weapon entering in and out of my coral crevice. It was a delicious sight and enhanced our pleasures tenfold. I was, however, so full of love's juices that I could hold back no longer. "'I am coming, dear Herbert!' I exclaimed. "'Come at the same time that I do, darling. Come!' Ka, ka. 
I could perceive that Herbert was responding to my invocation, for he suddenly heaved up his buttocks, and, placing his two hands on my bottom, he pressed me so closely to him that the hair surrounding our private parts was mingled in one mass together, and I could feel his hot semen rush into me, meeting my own discharge which I emitted most copiously. Amy expressed herself as much gratified at witnessing our entrancing enjoyments as if she herself had been the recipient. After half an hour's enjoyment of more wine, Herbert's erect weapon, which we had never ceased handling, showed us that he was again ready for combat. This time he devised a new mode for satisfying his desires. He had been playing with my bubbies, admiring their whiteness, firmness, and volume. He pressed them closely together, and remarked that the narrow channel thus made would just fit his instrument. He placed me half sitting on an ottoman, and made me recline on my back on the divan. He then made Amy straddle my chest, her bottom just resting on the top of my breasts, her face turned towards me, thus presenting her delicious buttocks to his gaze. He now stood between my thighs, his right knee coming in contact with my hairy mount. He then placed his instrument between my breasts, and at the same time entered Amy's slit from behind. I squeezed my bubbies together and held his staff tight. It was a curious position, but it gave us all infinite enjoyment. For while he was satisfying Amy's greedy crevice with his pego, he was rubbing my clitoris with his knee. We all discharged together. All these experiences in the field of Venus were not sufficient to quench our desires, so excited were we with the voluptuous surroundings. After a few minutes' rest, Amy proposed the next tableau. She lay down lengthwise on the divan, and made me lie on the top of her with my head between her thighs, by which position my mouth came in contact with her notch, while hers did the same with mine. As I supported myself on my knees, my bottom was raised. She then directed Herbert to enter me from behind. No sooner was his staff embedded in my vagina than she commenced to titillate my clitoris with her tongue, while I performed the same office for her. I shall not attempt to describe my feelings during this delicious combat. Not only did I feel his soul-inspiring thrusts, but the titillations of her tongue almost sent me crazy with delight to say nothing of the pleasure I experienced from biting and sucking her voluptuous clitoris. We all discharged sooner this time than we had done before. We were now somewhat exhausted, and sat down to a splendid collation and drank some delicious wines. After this was over we all reclined on the divan together. "'Herbert,' said Amy, "'while we are resting, tell us your love adventures. They must be very racy.' "'Willingly, my love.' But it is a long story, and I am afraid of shocking your modesty, for I shall be obliged to use plain language. I tell you what to do, Herbert, said I. Use French terms. That will be an excellent way of getting over the difficulty. A good idea, Kate, and I will follow it. When I want to speak of the throne of Venus, I will use the word con. When I refer to man's organ, I will say vit. The buttocks I will call the fesses and cool, indiscriminately. I warn you beforehand some phrases I shall express entirely in French, as they cannot be translated without offending American ears. Besides which, I love to speak of matters of which I believe you are ignorant, for I am free to confess there is no greater rake than myself. 
We placed ourselves in listening posture, he with a hand placed over each of our mounts. He then commenced his history in the terms which will be found in the next chapter. End of Volume 1, Chapter 4